Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, and you're very welcome to this special additional installment of the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Hugh Linehan. On May the 9th, 2017, President Donald Trump fired the director of the FBI, James Comey. The reverberations from that action continue to be felt across the American and international political landscape, and they led directly to the appointment of Comey's predecessor at the FBI, Robert Mueller, as special counsel to investigate any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump, and any matters that arose or may arise directly from that investigation. This week, James Comey came to Ireland to promote his book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies and Leadership, and I spoke with him on Friday night in front of a live audience at the Irish Film Institute in Dublin. This is a recording of our conversation. Hello, everybody. You're all very welcome to this uh, question and answer session, which I have to admit I have been looking forward to enormously for, for, for quite some time. Um, welcome, James Comey, to Dublin. You've never been here before, I gather? I've been to Ireland. I've actually never been to Dublin. It's great to be here. The weather's always like this, I'm told. Always, always, all the time. That's how you can see all the tans and the people out there and on me as well. This is my heritage, you can tell. I stroke. Yeah, I wanted to mention that, first of all, because you you come from what in some ways people might say is a classic New York Irish cop background. Your grandfather was chief of police, is that right? Yeah, in Yonkers, New York, just north of the Bronx. And so is that, uh, I read, I read, Two or three years ago, you had a very interesting kind of a dialogue around some of the issues which continue to this day around race and policing and racial tensions in the, in the United States. And you talked a little bit about the position of the Irish as it used to be in the United States and the way it is now to draw some comparisons. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement was, was starting to happen. President Obama was yeah. talking about this. And you actually, you mentioned the fact that uh, the word paddy wagon, uh, and this had never occurred to me, was a derogatory term for a wagon for rounding up patties. Yep, that's where it came from. And I, I was giving a speech of, called Hard Truths. I wanted to say some things that I believe were true about law enforcement. And I said, we've long been the enforcer of a status quo in the United States that was tough on disfavored groups. And I explained to the audience, I said, my great-grandparents were all Irish immigrants. And so I know the stories. The Irish were treated very badly by the enforcers of the status quo, and I explained where the term paddy wagon comes from, and I said, but we also have to remember the experience of the Irish, as painful as it was, as badly as we were treated, is not anywhere near comparable to the experience of black Americans in our country, and we have to remember that history because the people we're policing and supporting and protecting know that history, and so we have to own it, stare at it, and account for it. Let me ask you about Hillary Clinton. Oh. You're probably sick of being told that she's in Dublin today. Um, I know you've probably spent several years of your life living in cities where Hillary Clinton was at the same time, and you never got to meet her. Yeah. So there's no reason why you should meet her in Dublin. Although in Dublin, everybody bumps into everybody else. Right. So you never know. Maybe it'll happen. So, so, so watch out for that. <laughs> she isn't in the audience by any chance, no? No, no. She I has don't. another gig going on now. Um, the... The report which came out just last week, um, you welcomed it in an op-ed in the New York Times. You, you welcomed the fact that it, that it happened. It's incredibly thorough. It's more than 500 pages long. Um, it analyzes everything around those issues of the investigation of Hillary Clinton's use of uh, a private server for her emails when she was Secretary of State. Um, you came to the conclusion in July of 2016 that there was no prosecutable offense or no criminal offense of, of any sort. But the manner in which you made the announcement of that was extremely controversial. Yep. This was a hugely partisan issue. And I think it's probably important, first of all, to say that on the Republican side, you were criticized for coming to that judgment. Um, and the report, I think, fully, fully vindicates you. I think there's no doubt about that. And it charts the detailed investigations which, which led to that decision. But taking that on board, 
there remain very serious criticisms of the way you presented that judgment at that time, the fact that you did not consult with your superiors in the Department of Justice, and the fact that you were highly critical of Hillary Clinton in making that statement. Why did you take that route at that time? It was the least bad of the choices in front of me. The whole case was a nightmare. Again, remember the situation. Unprecedented is a word that's often overused, not here. We were criminally investigating one of the two candidates for President of the United States in the middle of the election. And so no matter what result we came to, one group, one part of the partisan divide was going to be very angry at us. As my wife says, you never imagined you could piss off both halves. But we knew that we were going to be severely criticized no matter what we did. And to my mind, the most important thing, once we got to a place where it was apparent there wasn't a case that, that prosecutors would bring, is how do we close this case in a way that maintains, as well as we can, the faith and confidence of the American people in the justice system? That it's not a political fix by the Obama Justice Department letting off the hook their former Secretary of State. And I don't mean that the, the crazies on the right, they were going to be angry. I meant ordinary American people, I thought, would have a reasonable question about whether this was done in a fair, honest, and, and independent way. And there were a number of things that happened especially in the last weeks of the investigation that gave me concern that if I did the normal thing, normal thing would be FBI director stands next to the attorney general and they make an announcement, often in cases where the public has great interest, that includes a lot of detail, including things that people would say were criticism. I think of it as transparency, but we've long offered transparency to the American people in select cases. Ferguson is an example. It was a terrible situation with the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, the FBI investigated that. We investigated to see if we could bring a criminal case against that police officer, and we concluded that we couldn't. We didn't stop there, though. We released an 80-page report that summarized everything we found so the American people would have confidence. But the normal thing would be the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which was about her mishandling of classified information, would be handled by the Attorney General announcing it with the FBI director there. I decided that 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 would be the worst option of the two. And that, although still bad, the least bad option to preserve the American people's confidence, given a reasonable perception that the Attorney General was compromised at that point, was for me to step away from her and offer our recommendations separately. And I knew reasonable people could see that differently. I knew that I might be criticized for it. But I honestly thought, if I do the normal thing, I will do more damage to the institutions than if I do this thing I never imagined before. And, I mean, you made those decisions, and it, it seems clear to me from reading the book and from reading elements of, of the report just mentioned, that you did them from a place of integrity. But many, many people think they were the wrong decisions because you chose to, broke, to break not laws, not regulations, but norms yes. and long-established norms which had been in place for a long, long time. And you did that, as you've just said, because of perceptions, and perceptions by their nature are inevitably political. So were you not acting politically in making, in carrying out those actions the way you did? Well, only if, if you understand the word political to have a very lowercase p and be a close synonym with public opinion, public sentiment, public trust. Look, when you run the FBI or the Department of Justice, you have to care intensely what people think, because the justice system rests upon the faith and confidence of the people who are served by it, that they believe it's just, that Lady Justice has a blindfold on, and you're not on one team or the other. You're the referee during this World Cup match. We can trust you to make the calls without regard to partisanship. So in that sense, yes, but not in the normally understood definition of political, probably a capital P, with an eye towards the polls or votes or how it'll affect one team or the other. We really didn't. And, and that is one of the good things about the Inspector General's report. They make clear that even if you think we made the wrong decisions, we made them Absolutely. for the right reason. Absolutely, they definitely do. And, but that was what I was guided by, that, that my concern was, I played out in my head, and so did my team. Let's imagine we do the normal thing. Here's what will happen. The Attorney General will make an announcement. She already said she would accept my recommendation in order to deal with the public skepticism of her independence. She said, I'll accept Jim Comey's recommendation. She would announce that she'd gotten it, and there was no case there, and that was the end of it, likely. And then I would spend the summer being subpoenaed to Capitol Hill, trying to explain that we'd done it in a good way, 
on defense, backpedaling, backpedaling. And in the meantime, a corrosive doubt, I think, not among the partisans, they, they're going to be doubting based on their personal interests, but the corrosive doubt by ordinary Americans. Was this done in the right way? They didn't, if we didn't offer transparency and we weren't apparently independent, a corrosive doubt would creep in. And I'd work very hard to unring that bell, but my judgment was that is a worse option than this. Neither is a good option. This whole case was full of just terrible options. But that's what I thought. Offer transparency to the American people and do it. The only norm I broke was not doing it with the Attorney General. She said she'll accept my recommendation. Maybe I can comfort the American people this was done well by taking the hit. I knew this would be bad for me personally, but by announcing it separately. And, and they found me in this report. They said he was insubordinate. And I honestly had an emotional reaction to that when I first read it. I thought, come on, that's a load. I wasn't insubordinate. I respect the rules. I violated a norm here. And then I thought about it. I said, you know what? They're actually fair in that word because I did not tell my superior the substance of what I was going to do when she would reasonably have expected me to. And so, although I might choose a different word, that's fair to say that's insubordinate. It doesn't change how I think about it. Even though they disagreed, I really respect them. I told them when I talked to them, look, I disagree with you all. I, I think you un are underweighing the damage to the institution. And when you say there was a perception that uh, your superior, Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, might be, might be compromised, was it just the perception, or did you have, there is, a, there is a, in, a hint in the book that there's information that you had access to that might go towards that perception further? Yeah, that information, which is still classified, is still on the perception side. I never had any indication that Loretta Lynch was acting in a corrupt way or working with the Clinton campaign. We had one disturbing encounter early on where we got to the place where she was authorizing me to confirm that we were investigating the case, and she told me not to call it an investigation but to call it a matter. That was in September of 2015. The reason that was concerning is, first, the FBI we don't do matters, we do investigations, it's in the name, as you know, and, <laughs> and also that was, it struck me as strikingly similar to what the Clinton campaign was doing at the same time, which is trying to avoid having it characterized as a criminal investigation. They were using words like referral or review or that kind of thing, but other than that, I never saw any reality of her not acting impartially. Okay, but that's only a piece of it when you lead a justice institution. There were a number of other things that happened on the perception side. And look, I, I came to admire President Obama, but I don't want to let him off the hook. He also did twice something he shouldn't have done. He gave press interviews where he essentially said there's no there there in the Clinton investigation, which sets us up terribly, right? He's President Obama, he's a Democrat, she was his Secretary of State, his Justice Department's investigating this. And he's decided there's no there there? God forbid a president should comment on an ongoing criminal legal process. <laughs> well, of course, that's a, that's a fair point. Because that was back in the day where I thought, that's a terrible thing to do. Uh, now we get a Twitter attack every morning about criminal investigations. But, but President Obama, that was out of character for him. Because I found him and his predecessor, George W. Bush, very different people, but to be institutionalists. And so I don't know why he did that. But that was one of the bricks in the load that led me to think, if I do the normal thing, this institution will be damaged. And I can do something that I'd never imagined before that will better serve the institution. If you had still been director of the FBI last week, do you think you would have been forced to step down or be fired on the basis of this report? I don't know. I don't think so. But I wouldn't say with a certainty. I think it's a possibility. Um, but I don't know. I, and it's hard to imagine a life I haven't lived, but mm. I, I don't think so, honestly. Because, of course, I mean, people, there are so much people forget because so much is happening, you know, layer upon layer of things. That the moment of your firing by President Trump was ostensibly or was claimed to be because of a letter sent by Rod Rosenstein, who is still a very important figure in, in, in all this. And he was, he was far more critical. He was more personally critical of your actions, both in July and also in October. Um, you, it's clear that you have, not surprisingly, have huge issues with, with, with the content of that letter. Um, 
but it does make it does make point. I will read a point of it in relation to the October thing because we've we've covered July. You, you, I mean, you spoke. You had spoken by the time he sent this memo about the two doors when you were faced with in October, when emails were found on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Right, we reopened the investigation. You had the two doors. You reopened the investigation. The question was, would you conceal or would you inform Congress? that the investigation had been reopened. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe for the audience, before I read the Rosenstein quote, just for clarity, you could explain what it was you were facing there. Yeah. So we go through the nightmare of ending the investigation. I announce, offer transparency, explain what we found, what we think of it, and what our recommendation is. The Republicans attack me as corrupt and incompetent and obviously in the pocket of Hillary Clinton. The Clinton people attack me for offering too much transparency, and it's painful, but we're done. We're finished with the investigating Hillary Clinton forever, which is a great thing. We move on to lots of other things. In late October, I walk into a meeting with senior FBI people who had been the team on the investigation, the Clinton classified information investigation, and they're sitting at a, my conference table, and I remember the moment actually quite clearly. I walk in, it's October 27th, and I smile because they're it's like visiting your parents house you always sit in the same chair you always sat in they're in the chairs they were in during that year they would meet with me every week or so and so I said to them the band is back together what's up and I smiled and I didn't smile again for a long time like that <laughs> they said for reasons we can't explain there are hundreds of thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails on the laptop of a guy named Anthony Weiner I'm hoping you don't know this, so I'll explain it. Anthony I, Weiner, I suspect looking at this audience that they're pretty well okay. up in some of this. Uh, so maybe I can skip it then, because it's kind of icky. But uh, <laughs> There's quite a good film about Anthony Weiner, actually. So Anthony, I'll be short from Anthony Weiner, disgraced former congressman, husband, I think now former husband of one of Hillary Clinton's top aides. We didn't know this at the time, but it appeared that his laptop was the custodian of nearly all of the emails between Huma Abedin and Hillary Clinton, and other actually Clinton emails that had been were on Huma's devices and automatically backed up. That's the first category, and then a fair number, although not that big a number, that were forwarded by Huma Abedin to her husband's laptop so they could be printed, and then a small category that she forwarded to him. It appears for his information, which is a whole separate thing. And so they say we found in a criminal investigation of Anthony Weiner for inappropriate sexual contact with a woman, young woman, that it looks like there's hundreds of thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails there, more than we ever, ever found before, and then something really significant. They said, we think we may have found the missing emails. And what they meant by that was, the essence of the Clinton case was, there's no doubt she mishandled classified information. But what was she thinking when she did it? because no one was ever prosecuted for mistakes. You had to have done something you knew you shouldn't be doing for the Justice Department to consider prosecuting you. And we never found indications of that. We never found her first three months of emails as Secretary of State because she was using a BlackBerry device and we couldn't reconstruct that. And so the team said that fateful morning, we see thousands, actually tens of thousands, of the blackberry.net emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop, we think we might have found the missing emails. And if there was ever gonna be evidence that she knew she was doing something she shouldn't do, it would be there. And so the result might change. And they said the Department of Justice, the Obama Justice Department believes we have to go get a search warrant and get these. And I said, so do I, let's get these. So now what do we do? And that was the hardest professional decision I've ever been part of. Our norm, there are no rules about this, doesn't have to be rules because it's an important norm. Our norm is we take no action in the run-up to an election that could have an impact on the election if we can avoid it. I've lived that way my whole career. And so I kept looking for a door labeled no action. And as I saw it, I kept seeing two options and they were both actions. I could tell Congress that what we had repeatedly told them in the summer, under oath, and I say we, because both Loretta Lynch and I testified, this thing is done, the American people can rely upon it, it was done well, it's finished. Over and over again we said that. Now I know that's not true. And so I could do two things. I could tell Congress that, I could speak. God, that would be bad. 
that might have an impact on the election, or I could stay silent, which in my view was an action I could conceal, because having told them X, now that I know the truth is not X, to not speak is to take an action. And so how do I think about those? Speaking would be really bad. Concealing, in my judgment, my team's judgment, would be catastrophic for the FBI and the Justice Department. We can't lie to the American people in the middle of a presidential election. God, it sucks unbelievably, but we're going to have to inform Congress. But there... And the knowledge that it would almost immediately become public. Yeah, yeah. Look, I didn't, I didn't make a public announcement, yeah. but look, I know how Congress acts. They put it out publicly in 10 minutes, which is probably nine minutes slower than I expected. But I felt I had a duty to inform Congress about this, because another norm the Department of Justice has long operated under, we have a duty to correct. When we tell a tribunal something and it's no longer true, we have to correct it. And I did something that I hadn't done in July. I told my staff, tell the leadership of the Department of Justice that I think I have to do this. And I'm happy to talk to them about it. And so the Attorney General was informed, and the message came back from her. She thinks it's a bad idea. She would advise against it, but she does not wish to speak to him. And so it's mine. It's my decision again. And I chose to speak. Now, the Inspector General sees it very differently. Their view is, you should have stayed silent because the silence norm is so important and powerful. And I really like those people, and I've had this argument with them. I think they're underweighting the damage that would have flowed to the institution. The, the, the quote from the Inspector General is, established procedures are most important to follow when stakes are the highest. And <coughs> stakes could hardly have been higher than they, than they were in this case, a week, week and a half out from the election. Absolutely. But the reason I think they're wrong there, and again, I could be wrong, but here's how I think about it. That's not the way to think about it. We should do what we always do when the stakes are high. No, no, no. I think you'd want us to think about the norms and values of the institution, respect them, abide them, but figure out what is the right thing to do. Norms are useful, especially in normal situations. There was nothing normal about this situation. And so really saying, well, we've always done it a certain way, honestly, to my mind, is to stop short. I suppose the counter-argument is, is that norms are most useful in out-of-normal situations, because they allow people to follow lines which have been established over many years, that's what norms are, and, and therefore not to take the rap, perhaps, as you did as a, as a person individual. I just want to read the Rosenstein okay, quote, okay, if I may. Yeah, it, just to say, he says in relation to what you've just said, conceal is a loaded term that misstates the issue. When federal agents and prosecutors quietly open a criminal investigation, we are not concealing anything, we are simply following the long-standing policy we refrain from publishing non-public information. In that context, silence is not concealment. Yeah, it's the reason I think that his whole letter is nonsense and why the Inspector General doesn't, doesn't rely upon it. He's utterly ignoring the context. This wasn't about initiating a criminal investigation. This is about an investigation that had been public, the closure of which, closure of which we announced publicly, and the Attorney General and the FBI Director then testified about it and said it was done competently, honestly, and independently. And you American people can take that to the bank. That's a very different situation than when you first open a criminal case deciding whether to talk about it. And so to my mind, I, I really don't take that criticism seriously, his, because I think that was written as a pretense. But I take very seriously the criticism of the Attorney General, I mean, excuse me, of the Inspector General. And their view is, they get, they say, look, I faced very difficult and unpalatable choices. They just think it would have been better to follow the norm of staying silent. And I don't mean this to be facetious. I honestly think if I'd chosen the opposite, if I'd spoken, they'd be writing a report about how I destroyed the reputation of the FBI by not doing something that was consistent with the values. Because here's how I think about norms. Norms are really important because it's like the common law. It's a set of guides that have developed through practice and the reason they're norms is because in most situations they produce results consistent with the values of the organization. If they always produced it, you'd probably make them rules, but norms would be respected. But they don't always produce reliable decisions, reliably produce decisions. That's why they're called norms. And where they tend to be stressed most is in unprecedented situations because the unprecedented was never part of the common law of the formulation of the norm. I don't know if anybody else here, I'd never heard of a situation like we faced with this, ever. And so norms had to be respected, 
But nobody developed the norm thinking about this. And so, I look, I disagree with the Inspector General. Again, but I respect it. I know this sounds crazy, but I pushed for them to do this. First of all, because I wasn't certain I was right. I'm still not certain I was right. But if this ever happens again, there's now a record of how the department thinks we should think about these difficult issues. Is it not the case, though, that nobody had to make these decisions except you in the circumstance you're in? And there are many people, many reputable, nonpartisan expert analysts who 100% respect the integrity um, that you brought to this process, but who profoundly disagree with the decisions you made, the doors you went through. I've read far more of them than of people who support the actual final decision you made. Yeah, that's okay. We look at that it doesn't cause you to reconsider? No, it doesn't. And look, I think part of the challenge is we've all now lived a certain life. I, I knew the moment I made this decision, people are never going to be able to fully understand this because something will have happened. Right? We will have lived a life. And so inevitably, everyone else will be looking back at this decision. And as hard as they work, they will be trapped to a certain extent in a hindsight bias. They know Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. That has an important shaping effect on me, and I made the decision. But sitting there on October 28th, if you really could bring yourself there, I don't think, I'm not saying you, but that people can be so certain that I was wrong. Well, it's easier for the rest of us, there's no doubt. You know? <laughs> but but I, still, I still do wonder, one of, the, one of the things I wonder is, you were criticized earlier in the year by some Republicans, in fact still are, for preparing for the prospect of Hillary Clinton um, not being charged. And your response to that, which I, strikes me as completely reasonable, is that you scenario plan, and you plan out various likely avenues, and you, you figure out what you're going to do when those scenarios arrive. And I wonder why in October then, or perhaps a little later, when Loretta Lynch, I think possibly after all this was over, in the book you say that she said to you, well, of course, the thing, if you hadn't said it, it's quite likely it would have leaked out two days before the election, probably through the New York office. And that in the book, you say that came as a surprise to you. But for somebody as meticulous and well-planned as you, why would that be a surprise? Well, I, I forget exactly how I say it. I was surprised that she said that. So you took it into your calculations? I didn't, actually. I thought about it and then pushed it out of my calculation because I thought that's the coward's way. And in a way, that would bring the FBI the worst of both options. Because, look, I could have done that. I could have said, well, we're going to follow the norm, knowing in the back of my mind the circles just got really big. A whole lot of people in New York know that we're going for these, these uh, wiener emails, and so it'll come out. The reason I say that would bring us the worst, that would be speaking while concealing. Right? The organization would take the hit for hiding something that was no longer true and for speaking before an election. But I'll tell you how it did figure in my, in my mind. It consoled me that I'm not all that important, that as hard as I saw the decision, in a way, and this is what I thought Loretta was saying to me, don't agonize too much about the decision or agonize about the decision you've already made because no matter what you did, it was going to come out. That's what I understood her to be saying. Mm. So I, I hope that makes sense. I did not make the decision because it would leak, but I told myself late at night, look, your decision is not all that consequential because even if you'd chosen the other, it would come out anyway. In some ways a worse form because it would have been closer to the election. You talk in the book about the FBI being in a particular position. You use a kind of maritime metaphor about there's choppy seas and then there's a, there's a sound and the FBI is sort of trapped between the two of them and it's a, it's, it's, it's a difficult process. And one of the things that struck me reading it as an Irish person is we're quite familiar here with the notion of institutions protecting themselves. And you speak uh, at, at some length and very persuasively about the importance of and you phrase it in different ways throughout the book, maintaining the trust of the American people in the process and in the institutions and, and, and in the FBI and other institutions of the state. But we're all conscious, we're particularly conscious here, that institutions can rationalize that kind of motivation, uh, that maintaining the trust involves protecting the institution, and that becomes a priority, perhaps, over other priorities. And that can lead to very bad things happening. I'm not saying that what happened with the FBI is as bad as that at all. But it can, you can end up with a different motivation. The ultimate motivation ends up being, because you want to maintain the trust, you protect the institution, and you therefore make a decision that protects the institution rather than accomplishing some other goal. Um, we're all familiar with the, <clears throat> with the phrase, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Is that not kind of in contradiction to, to that impulse? 
And how, do, how, does, how do your actions fit into that? It depends, I suppose, what you mean by protecting the institution. I think of it in two different ways, one bad, one good. Protecting my fiefdom, my turf, my patronage, my job, those are protections of the institution that, to my mind, are lower level. Sure. And that the appropriate way to think about protecting the institution is the institution is the embodiment of a set of values, truth, the rule of law, equal protection of the laws. To the extent you're trying to protect the institution as it's the embodiment of those values, I think that's what you should be doing. So you're trying to protect the ethical content of the institution and not the parochial you know, desks and jobs and cars. <coughs> and, but look, there's always a danger in all human existence, especially as a leader, you're going to fall in love with your own righteousness. Right? It, someone said it's a poor advocate who can't convince himself of the righteousness of his own position. Mm. And so the, the antidote to that is, and one of the things I'm proudest of, is the way these decisions were made. Not by me, I mean ultimately I made the decisions, but by a group of people sitting around banging on it, arguing against arguing, taking straw persons, pushing on that, having people take different points of view at all ranks and without regard to rank. And one of the most important questions that was asked was by a brilliant young lawyer who didn't speak much, Tricia Anderson, Actually, I didn't name her in the book, so forget I forget that. Uh, <laughs> Jane Doe. Uh, and Jane was a very quiet person. I often had to drag her into a conversation because I knew if words came out of her mouth, I would want to listen to them. And I remember this moment. We're sitting around the table, and she says, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. She said, should you consider that what you're about to do, this is October 27th, should you consider that what you're about to do might help elect Donald Trump president of the United States? And I said, thank you for that question. Great question. Not for a moment. Because down that path lies the death of the FBI as an independent institution. The values of this institution require us to stand apart from politics. So I'm glad you asked, but I can't think about that. I have to decide what's consistent with this institution's values, the justice system more broadly. And I think that's the right way to think about it, both in terms of the things you focus on. And one of the reasons I called this book A Higher Loyalty, it's a play on Donald Trump asking me for loyalty, but more than that, I think what we're supposed to do as, as leaders is look at those higher values and focus on them when we make decisions. And make decisions in a way that is a guardrail against your the dangerous tendency to fall in love with your own righteousness. We'll come to Donald Trump in a minute. Speaking, speaking of right. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, before that, the book is one of the fascinating things about the book, and it is a terrific read for first time writer, congratulations, um, is that it, it's both, it reads like a thriller in parts, uh, but it's also a meditation on issues like, like leadership and loyalty and, and, and those kinds of issues. And I was listening to, um, you're familiar with Benjamin Wittes and his yeah. Lawfare blog and his podcast, which goes dives very deep. Into, into some of these issues. And he was discussing the Inspector General's report last week with a panel. And I think it was a former FBI person, or certainly somebody from the intelligence community, who talked about your managerial style, which you talk about in the book. <coughs> and that essentially, and we all know that the FBI has a tradition of being very buttoned, buttoned up or buttoned down or whatever it is, and everybody wears the same clothes. And you try to bring a, a, a bit more informality, a bit more humor, perhaps a bit more modernity to, to the organization. Uh, probably more than was there with your predecessor, Robert Mueller. Mm -hmm. um, the suggestion was made on the on, on the podcast that was that Mueller ruled a little bit, a little bit more fear, and you ruled with a little bit less fear. Mueller doesn't leak. The New York office kept leaking all the time. The suggestion was that perhaps a little bit more fear might have been good under your tenure. Yeah, that's actually a really fair question. I hate to break it to them, but the New York office leaked when Bob Mueller was director, too. Um, Bob Mueller's operation does not leak because the people close to him would be afraid for their lives. Uh, but he couldn't reach all the way to New York. But no, Bob and I had a different style, and I, I think we were each there at the right time. Bob did something unimaginably hard. He kept the FBI together after 9-11 and he drove that organization to change the way it thought about its mission and that required a very strong hand. And I don't know whether I would have done it as well as he did, 
And so I inherited an organization in a very different place. And what I was trying to do was shape the culture in a lot of ways to attract more women and people of color. But I also wanted to see if I couldn't flatten the hill. The, the real obstacle to leading the FBI is the hill up to the director is very steep. And that's a hill that was actually built by J. Edgar Hoover. And the director sits at the top, and everybody's way down there, buttoned up, wearing white shirts, either blue tie or, or, or red tie if you're a woman, and not many women. And everyone has to look straight up the hill at the director. And to my mind, that's dangerous. Because it's an impediment to me hearing the truth about a whole lot of things, but especially about myself. So I have to find a way to flatten the hill. And I did it in lots of silly ways. But silly ways are really important. I changed the way I dressed. I didn't dress this cool, but I was, <laughs> but I, I wore blue shirts and I didn't wear my jacket. And I told people, don't come dressed like you're going to a funeral to come meet with me. Because if you're dressed like you're at a funeral, it'll act like you're at a funeral. And then I did other things which were a big deal in the FBI. You're gonna laugh, but this was a really big deal. I went to get my own lunch every day. Something Bob never did. I went to the cafeteria. I stood in line to order my sandwich. And the line was really long because it was also the panini line and those take forever. <laughs> and, and I would stand in the line, jacket off, and chat with people and interview them, ask them questions. What do you like about it here? What do you think about it here? What's good, what's bad? And everyone knew that the director had entered the cafeteria. It's a gigantic cafeteria and they would watch me and watch me interact with people and everyone knew the director stands in line. He never cuts the line, he always pays. He then goes and he waits at the cash register. That's signaling and trying to say, I need to flatten the hill. And sometimes the hill would get really flat. My wife Patrice is with me tonight. I think her favorite story is I'm standing in line in front of a guy. I turn around and I start chatting with him, asking him where he works and he tells me he works on computer servers. In response to my questions, he says, I love it here because I get responsibility I couldn't get in the private sector. Been here three years, my office is on 10. And then he finishes, and then there's this awkward pause. And he says, how about yourself? <laughs> it's a true story. And so I said, I'm the director. And he goes, director of? <laughs> and I said, dude, I'm the director of the FBI. You work for me. And he says, oh my God, you look so different online. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'm like this tall online. But I went home and told her that story, and she said, that should happen every day. That is so good for you. But it's flattening the hill. I made them all tell me their favorite Halloween candy. The senior leaders of the FBI. I said, we're going to go around the table. I want to know what your favorite Halloween candy is now. If it was different when you were a kid, I want to know what that was and why. And then another meeting, I said, I want everyone in this room to say something about themselves that would surprise the other people in this room. And it may not be something that would jeopardize your clearances. And so one senior executive revealed that he's a Disney freak. He loves all the Disney movies. He goes to Disney World as often as he can. Another one said, no one knows this, but I drive a VW Bug on the weekends. And for that's, the FBI, that's pretty radical for the this FBI. This is shocking stuff. Yeah. So all of this is about flattening the hill so that people will tell me the truth, will help me make really hard decisions, will ask a question. Think of the guts it takes up that hill to say, should you consider that what you're about to do may help like Donald Trump, President of the United States? That only happened because I just spent four years trying to flatten that hill. I believe every leader should work to flatten that hill. So you don't think your change in management style made any contribution to some of the difficulties the FBI faced or the way in which it dealt with them? Do you think it dealt with them better then, in that case? I don't. I, people don't know this, but I could be, and it can be, a very hard hand. And so I, I mean, I'm a nice person. I'm not a weak person. And so I took some very strong disciplinary action against people. So I don't think inside the Bureau they thought I was weak. Not as tough as Bob, but I don't think that contributed in, this circumstances, in these circumstances. One of the things the Inspector General says is that the FBI needs to work to improve not the rules governing the interaction with the media, but the culture. And I think that's fair criticism, but I don't know that it's the product of the way I approach the job. Now, there are, there are many very dramatic moments in the book, and, and not all of them are just in the last two or three years, and very dramatic moments during the, during the George Bush years when you were working for, for John Ashcroft. But something changes 
with the election of Donald Trump. It seems to me, um, for all of us, and for you especially, um, your first meeting with Donald Trump <coughs> has an almost hallucinatory kind of a quality. Uh, yes, you way to travel up. You travel up from from Washington D.C. in the in the depths of winter to meet the the president elect as he was then. Could you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I got to go back a little bit to right after the election. President Obama, who knew because we'd been briefing him that the Russians were interfering in the election to hurt Clinton, to help Trump, and to damage the United States, ordered us to put together everything we know paint a picture of what the Russians did, how we assessed the threat. And so this, I was assigned to the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, under the leadership of the Director of National Intelligence, Jim Clapper. And we finished the report, a joint high-confidence assessment, and the top-secret version was very long and detailed, laid out all the sources, all the methods, here's how we know this. And we briefed it to President Obama and the Vice President, Joe Biden, and their senior team in the Oval Office, and the next morning we went to Capitol Hill and briefed the leaders of Congress. And then at President Obama's direction, then we took the same show on the road and went to Manhattan to brief the president-elect and his team. And so we arrived there in the afternoon on January the 6th, Friday the January the 6th, and we sat in a conference room. It's kind of a dull gold curtain. And Jim Clapper gave the same briefing he'd given to the president and to the leaders of Congress. and. There was a second part to the meeting that involved me having drawn, drawn the short straw to meet alone with the president-elect to talk about some sex stuff, some salacious the stuff. The Steele dossier. Yeah, not, well, just this one small piece of the Steele dossier that related to allegations that the then-private citizen Donald Trump had been with prostitutes in a Moscow hotel room engaged in unusual activities. <laughs> and and we, had, we had briefed it's only one funny moment in this entire thing, so I should tell you because it makes me happy. Um, <laughs> we're briefing President Obama, and I'm not doing much talking in the Oval Office. I'm sitting about where you are. The Director of National Intelligence is here. He's facing the President who's sitting with his back to the fireplace, as he always did. And, and he's telling the President that about the Steele dossier material and that we've decided it's important that we tell the incoming President that we know this bit about the sex stuff because we don't want to keep secrets from him. We don't know whether it's true or not, and honestly, we don't care, he said. But if there's anything to it, we will diminish the ability of the adversary, Russia, to use it as leverage if we inform him that we know. That's called a defensive briefing. And we just think the man should know because it's about to become public and we don't want to hide that from him. President Obama listened stone-faced, as he typically did, and then he said, what's the plan for that briefing? And Jim Clapper was a very dry, wonderful person, but seems kind of grouchy. He says, he just looks at me with the slightest of sidelong glances and says, well, Jim is going to uh, stay behind and meet with him alone. <laughs> and we think that makes sense because Jim is staying in his job. I'm leaving. Jim Clapper, the director of CIA, is leaving. And Jim's job is counterintelligence. And Jim's aware of the material. We think Jim's an effective communicator. This will be a difficult conversation. And he says all that. And President Obama doesn't say a word. I don't know whether you'll be able to see it in here. He just turns towards me and raises and lowers both eyebrows. <laughs> like Groucho Marx. Just up and then down. <clears throat> and I read in that moment, you poor bastard. <laughs> and, and it was so nice. I mean, it was funny. Because I'm of Irish heritage, I like dark humor. And so it was kind of a funny thing. And to me, it was also a marker of President Obama's extraordinary use of humor. Because it was a way of telling me, you're screwed, but that's hilarious. <laughs> and, and they didn't say another word. And so that moment happens at the end of the full briefing of the president-elect. I stay behind. And we met just the two of us. And I... I had this plan, which I stuck to, that I wasn't going to go into all the unusual activity details, but I was going to give him enough notice that he would know what this was. And it was so bizarre that I, I think I described it in the book, you said hallucinatory, I should use that word, but I described it as an out-of-body experience. I can remember look, looking down on myself doing this, thinking, what the hell? <laughs> How did I end up here, the president-elect, talking about prostitutes in Russia? What has happened to me? And then I was brought down into my body and finished it. 
And he reacted very defensively and asked something about, did he look like a guy who needed the services of prostitutes, which I took as a rhetorical question. So then, <laughs> and so then I, uh, I finished, got the conversation back on track, and then I left. And so I had done what the Director of National Intelligence had said that I should do. But that's, that was a very, very difficult way to begin a relationship. That's a great way to meet your new boss, all right. Well, yeah. Remember who I am. I'm the director of the FBI and heir to Jager Hoover. And so, look, I know how people are. This isn't a comment on Donald Trump, it's a comment on humans. We all tend to assume that people interface with the world the way we do. And so Donald Trump, hardball dealmaker, I thought, is going to be sitting there thinking I'm pulling a Jager Hoover. That what I'm doing is dangling this stuff to jam him, hmm. to let him know, you better not mess with me, because I know about the hookers in, in Moscow thing, which is not what I was up to. But I knew, I said, holy cow, I'm going to begin a relationship with the new president thinking I'm Jagger Hoover. And so I was very keen to have a way to take the temperature down if the conversation got off the rails. And I did. What I had in my pocket was a literally true statement that I wasn't going to volunteer unless I needed it. And I needed it because this conversation started spinning off into really odd directions as he started denying that he had ever sexually assaulted women and started listing the women. That woman on the plane, I didn't do that. That woman here, that... And I didn't ask any questions about that. What, kind what of are you thinking? Well, that's going on. I'm floating up at the ceiling again. <laughs> no, I'm thinking, oh man, this is getting out of control. Because he's so defensive that he clearly thinks I'm making a move here. I have to find a way to take this temperature down. Because, I, again, I'm, I'm intending to serve for another six years. I have to find a way to work with this president. And so I pulled out of my pocket what I'd come with, rhetoric, uh, metaphorically, and said, Mr. President, we're not investigating you personally, which was true. My general counsel had been concerned that I not say that because he agreed it was true. But he said, look, someday it may not be true. And then what are you going to do? You're going to call him up and say, this whole duty to correct thing is back. I told you this thing. Now it's not true. We're investigating you again. And this is important because it becomes a major impediment to our relationship later on before I get fired. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, okay. it wasn't that long a relationship. It was only about three, three or four months or yeah, so. January uh, 6th to May 9th. Not that I'm counting the days. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, as, as, as you mentioned there, most of your colleagues who flew up from Washington, D.C. on that day were, were Obama appointees who would be leaving office with the, with the changing of the presidency. But your, the FBI directorship works differently and is designed in such a way as not, presumably not to be a subject to the political process yes. and is appointed for, for a 10-year period. Um, I, I get the impression from the book that Donald Trump was always uncomfortable with that, that he was going to appoint his cabinet, appoint all his key positions, and that one of the reasons why he came after you in such a forceful and, to my mind, slightly frightening way, uh, looking for these expressions of loyalty was because of that, because he didn't have the assurance that you were his guy, and that's what he needed. I think that's fair. I think it's a product, though, and this is speculation, less of a particular focus on the 10-year the term, or me, than a focus on his leadership style. Was it still is, transactional and loyal, personal loyalty based. I need to know that everybody at this table is on this team and is serving me. And, and I was a holdover, so that brought a particular focus, but I'm guessing he had a similar conversation with everybody he appointed to, to office be, just because of the way he leads. And look, I explained to him, maybe I used the wrong word, during our dinner, I dropped him at one point to say, look, it's a paradox. Presidents, over time, tend to assume problems come from justice, so their instinct is to hold justice close. That always makes it worse. I was trying to appeal to his practical sense. There's great benefit to the institution of the presidency to have the justice institution at arm's length, because we often have to investigate people close to the president. And I don't, I don't think that got through. No, when, when, when the book came out, first of all, there were certain, there were always these very fast hot takes within 12 hours of the book coming out. And I, a couple of people were critical of you making comments about his orange skin and little white bags under his eyes where his tanning, tanning goggles were on, or indeed the size of his hands. I think it's absolutely fine within the context of the overall book myself and it lends. That's my editor. editor. My editor actually. Blame your editor, excellent. That paragraph. Yeah. Amy Einhorn was my editor. Yeah. She said, 
We need more detail here. Bring the reader with you. Sometimes people look different on TV than in person. Describe Donald Trump in great detail. So I didn't make that and, stuff and, up. and I think you do it very well. But what I wanted to ask you was, far more than that, on repeated occasions, three times, four times, maybe five times, you make that comparison between the way in which Donald Trump works the room and the people around him and your experience of mafiosi. Yeah. And, you know, we can all have a we can all call people who say people look like mafiosi, but I base that on my reading of Goodfellas, The Godfather and The Sopranos. You've been in the room with those people. Yeah. So there's something very telling to me about that. It's not just that you're making that comparison. The fact that you make it a number of times, what are you telling us there? That that is my honest impression about his leadership style. And I resisted it mightily when it first popped in my head because I thought it actually popped in my head on January the 6th in the conference room because it all of a sudden it just reminded me of a Cosa Nostra culture, the leader at the center. It's all about the boss and an effort to make everyone, as the, as the Mafia would say, a Mica Nostra, friend of ours. The Mafia makes this distinction. There's only two spheres of the world. There's friends of ours and there's a friend of yours. Friends of yours are on the outside. Friends of ours are part of this thing of ours, La Cosa Nostra. And I'm sitting at the table at Trump Tower, and the way the president was acting, the way the conversation was going, that image popped in my head, and I pushed it away. I thought, that's crazy. And it came back. I pushed it away again. It came back. And the more I dealt with him, the more I kept thinking of that. And look, it's a dangerous metaphor, because I don't mean it in the sense that Donald Trump is hijacking trucks, you know, with watches in them or something. There's all kinds of crimes one can commit, though. Right. You don't have to hijack trucks. But, I don't, but I don't, I'm not saying Cosa Nostra in the sense of that. But the culture is very similar. The, the leadership culture is very similar. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to understand, is it possible to have a culture like that and run a legal, ethical organization? Have you ever seen those kind of practices in a above-board organization? No, not in the long run. And, and look, I've been... Again, straightforward about this, I think. I think he's morally unqualified to be president of the United States. And that's not a policy judgment. People can disagree about taxes. Or people can even disagree not about all aspects of immigration. I don't think people can reasonably disagree about the treatment of children at our border. But they can reasonably disagree about a lot of things. That's not what I'm talking about. A mafioso boss makes decisions based on one reference point, and it's right here. What are you doing for me? What does this deal have for me? What are you bringing me? How are you feeding me? Donald Trump is very similar. The reference point is only internal. It's not an ethical leader leads by reference to a set of external reference points. Sometimes a religious tradition, logic, philosophy, history, norms that have developed. I don't think that's the case with him at all. It's about this. And with him, it's different than a mafioso boss. There's a hunger for affirmation that I've never seen before in an adult. I'm not trying to be a wise guy saying that. I've never seen it. And so the hole has to be filled right here. And every dis I judge you by how you fill that hole. If you've watched the cabinet meetings, which require people to go around the room and fill the hole, it's amazing to watch. There's only one person who doesn't fill the hole. And it's, and it's a person I have a great deal of admiration for. It's the Secretary of Defense. Um, I, Please don't publicize this because I don't want the president to notice this. But notice what he says. Everybody else praises the president. General Mattis praises the men and women in service to the United States of America. Always. He never fills the hole. And we need him there, so I don't want a lot of talk I, about that. I, I, I was rereading the book this week, and it caused me to go to Google and Google the word sociopath. Because the description you give of the personality of Donald Trump fits very closely in many respects, a complete lack of empathy, a narcissism, um, a, 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 a need for affirmation all the time, a limited or no moral code of any apparent. Do you have any, do you, what do you think about that? I don't know enough to do a DSM diagnosis. Uh, Google, I, Google does it for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've heard people say he's a narcissist. I actually looked that one up. You can't be a clinical narcissist and still be high functioning. So he's high-functioning, and the man's president of the United States. But there are elements of that. If you read the definition of a narcissist especially, it's hard to walk away from that without some things ringing true. In Michael Wolff's um, book about the White House, 
Steve Bannon, when asked about the ongoing investigations which are going on at the moment, says that in his opinion it'll all come down in the end to money laundering. Do you have any view on that? I don't. I don't know where the investigation will end up or what Bob Mueller will find, and no one does. Everything you've ever read or heard is uninformed because there have been no leaks. I mean, every time Bob Mueller's brought charges, and I keep hearing saying, so why is he taking so long and doing nothing? I think he's charged 19 people in 12 months. Every time he's brought an indictment, it was a shock. So I don't know where he's going or what he's doing. So the only thing I can say with high confidence is, if he is allowed to finish his work, he will find the provable facts that are available that will illuminate whatever the truth is. And I don't know what he'll find. I don't know whether he'll find nothing bad about the president or whether he'll find things that are horrific or something in between. I really don't. Isn't the reality, ultimately, that this is a political problem rather than a legal one? And that many people argue that Donald Trump, with all his horrific flaws, is, um, is a symptom rather than a cause. What do you think about that? That there's something has gone wrong in American politics. You were a, a registered Republican for many years. You aren't one anymore. No. How did the Republican Party come to nominate and the American electorate come to elect this man? He is, I, so I agree with your characterization, he is not a cause, he's a symptom. He's a reflection of a place we've been before in American history. If you look at the history of America, it's comforting in that sense. I just finished John Meacham's book, The Soul of America, where he reviews all the times we've been at this kind of place, and it's eerie, the similarity of some of the places we've been. Not exactly the same, but you look at 1950 to 54, Senator Joe McCarthy dominated American politics, and his own party was terrified of criticizing him, even though they all knew that what he was doing accusing people of crimes they didn't commit, smearing people, ruining them, that all of that was going on, no one spoke. And he had the support of a lot of Americans. And that fever lasted four years. And then he was ruined and out of office, and we returned. Meacham makes the case that the, the slope of America's line is always positive. We're always making progress. But if you stare at it very closely, it's not a solid line. It's a jagged line. We make great progress, we retrench. We make great progress, we retrench. 1920 to 1924, after a period of tremendous advancement for women in the wake of World War I, blacks in America, and a huge wave of immigration, the retrenchment was one-third of the members of the United States Congress were members of the KKK. There were 20-some million Ku Klux Klan members in the United States. Most Americans don't even know that history because that fever lasted about three years, maybe four years, and then broke, and the Klan was crushed, and people were ashamed of the way we had acted. This is the story of America. So Donald Trump is not exceptional and reflects a pattern of history, in my view. Our obligation, though, is not to be consoled by that and say, well, okay, we'll just let it run its course, mm. is to cabinet and make the fever break as soon as possible, which is why when I stare at things like the southwest border, as desperately immoral as the behavior was of our country at the border, I hope it's a spur to changing the slope of our line, to returning to our upward slope, that people realize, wait a minute, which they did, by the way. The reason Donald Trump changed position on that is Americans across the spectrum said, wait a minute, this is not who we are. People need to awaken from that fever dream and realize that this man does not represent who we are. But again, to come back to what you said, he's not a cause, he is a reflection. The good news is we. this is not who we are as Americans, we are complicated and messy, but we always come back. We always come back from this kind of thing. And so I'm an optimist, just because I know American history, and I also feel the coming back already as I travel around the United States. Cool things. There are more women running for office in the United States right now than ever in our history. There are more young people running for office than ever before. There's engagement that wouldn't have happened two years ago and yes, a lot of what's going on is a retrenchment, a reaction to the fact that we elected a black president, we're on the way to becoming a minority, majority-minority country, we legalized gay marriage, we have had tremendous economic dislocation. All of that is a recipe for this, but I already feel it jagging back up. I sort of feel we should end it on that, on, 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 on that note. <laughs> 
And that's it for this special edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and to the Irish Film Institute for their assistance. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be and we are always very grateful if you could take a second to review the show or to recommend it to your friends. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlenahan at irishtimes.com or I can usually be found hanging around on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.